This episode is brought to you by A Foul Light Shines, a new free serial novel based on a D&D campaign. The Empire of Fire and Water has known 20 golden years of peace since the end of Agenion's War, a peace which is now in peril. When a ragtag group of friends intervene in a grotesque monster attack, they're too late to save a wounded man who leaves them with an encrypted journal and the words, Trust no one, Tyre. Can the gang find Tyre, escape the claws of more strange monsters, and uncover the lurking threat to the Empire before it's too late? This story features themes of found family and strength and diversity, and is available for free on Campfire and Royal Road. A foul light shines. Come for the fantasy. Stay for the cheese-obsessed goblin gunslinger. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless A Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan, and I am particularly nerdily excited for today's episode as I got to touch on multiple passions of mine in a conversation with tabletop and entertainment reporter and game designer, Linda Cadega. Linda's TTRPG and entertainment work has led to some incredibly important conversations in the space, including award-winning work on Wizards of the Coast considering changing its open gaming license, racism in D&D, tabletop luxury woodworking company Wormwood's toxic workplace culture, and much, much more. They also cover independent game studios, compile the actual play and game release spotlight, the gaming shelf, and all kinds of really, truly great stuff. This was such a wonderful interview because I think there's a real lack of understanding of the work, the opportunities, the limitations, and the obligations that go into being a journalist. We talk about thinking seriously about silly things, professional rascalism, finding relevance, working with and around the elephant in the room, and balancing being a person, a reporter, and a figure all at once. I hope you all find it as interesting and informative and delightful as I did. That's it for me. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please go check out some of our other Reckless Talk interviews and maybe even our actual play episodes. Links to all the stuff we talk about, including some of Linda's great reporting, are in the show notes. And with that... I'll see you next time. Hello, Lynn. Hi, Nathan. (laughs) How are you today? I'm a little sleepy, Mm. but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. I had a really nice picnic with my friends at the waterfront. I went to the farmer's market. I hung out with my dog. You know, it's been pretty solid. What just a lovely, like a suburban, like platonic ideal of a of a lovely Sunday morning of just checking checking off all the like beautiful, quaint, actually lovely things mm-hmm. uh, in the day. Now you have to sit down and talk to me for better or worse. But well, I'm happy to have you at least. You can't have it all. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta you, you know you gotta earn Balance. those good moments exactly and put in the hard work of doing <laughs> things like being here on this podcast. Oh, I don't know. If I would call it hard work, but (laughs) I certainly logged on to my computer and I'm here. 
but I'm excited to be here. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> these are these the intros are always so weird because it's always like it's the first, you know, 15 seconds of recorded conversation. Mm-hmm. What's the amount of joking that we should be do, going? You know, it's like, yeah. do we joke about ugh, what a dreadful time it is to be here? Do people understand that it's all a joke? Is that the right tone? Is it whatever? But I, I am glad that you are here. And that is a, a real factual statement. Happy to be here. Also a real factual <laughs> statement. I promise no one is forcing me to say this against my will. And I enter into it willingly and with, the full, <laughs> with full knowledge of my actions. Perfect. Well, and Lynn, for those of our listeners who do not know who is definitely voluntarily being on this week's episode of Reckless to Talk, <laughs> could you please uh, introduce yourself, who you are, your pronouns, how people might know you, all that good stuff. Sure. Well, I'm Linda Cadega. I am a technically a staff writer for io9. Um, I consider myself an entertainment journalist. I use they them pronouns. And I do a lot of work in the tabletop role playing space. And recently, this year, I broke a pretty big story about Dungeons and Dragons, where they were planning to change the terms of the open gaming license which had stood for about 22 years, my investigative reporting more or less made sure that didn't happen. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable statement um, for those of you who, who are not aware <laughs> of that thing. We'll, we'll have, we will include links to all that reporting and more in the show notes as with, as, as with all random things that we'll talk about in today's episode. Mm-hmm. But Lynn, I'm just, I'm so, so excited that you are here. Uh, so excited to chat with you. I was also, like we kind of talked in the pre-show, was also a former reporter. Mm-hmm. It's a cool thing for me. I so rarely get to talk journalistic shop with people yes. anymore. So it's so important. There was like a little tweet going around the other day. It's just like you really need friends in the industry who are also reporters and journalists, or else like you just will not make it. Yeah. They can't work for the same place where you work because then you just get like tied up in the idiosyncrasies of like, oh, my God, what the fuck is Geo Media doing this week? (laughs) So it's really important to have like a cadre of friends that are all like on the same beat as you. And so whenever anything like even mildly interesting or mildly shitty or like terrifying happens, you can just immediately go to like Christian Hoffer, Chase Carter or Dan Arndt or like Charlie Hall or uh, Ash Parrish and just like scream in their DMs (laughs) and just being like, let me tell you what the TTRPG girlies are up to now because the tea is hot. (laughs) So it's really, it's really important to have those people who are like willing to indulge in being like professional busy buddies yeah. alongside you <laughs> or me a a professional busy buddy right yeah exactly yeah and 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 of, of kind of the understanding of like there is that shared i'm not going to say well, the share har- shared hardships of being a journalist is a particular spectrum of experience um, that like people can get but like it's just easier to have the shorthand of like you get it you understand yeah It's very interesting. I mean, we can definitely like get into it, but like being a journalist in any space is difficult, but especially in the entertainment space where journalism is so often kind of being replaced with fandom and with entertainment in a way that is not necessarily conducive to like producing good journalism or producing good journalists. The scales are still moving on that one in very interesting ways. Um, Yeah, so being an entertainment journalist is is very much like existing in an industry that is like in flux. Yes. And has been in flux for like 10 or 20 years and has never quite 
found its ground in an, in interesting ways. And by interesting, I mean like scary. (laughs) (laughs) In that, that kind of like the interesting in that it is of interest, not necessarily that's like, Ooh, what a fun quirky thing. It's just like, this consumes a lot of thought (laughs) and a lot of energy just to consider. Um, but oh, oh, Linda, don't worry. We will be talking about all of that. Oh, whoa, crazy! I know, I know. I'm I'm coming out of left field uh, talking about these sorts of things. But that's that's not where we start. That's not where all of this boils down to. No, we have to start at your beginning. Start in like a shallow end, and then like we'll be ready to for Linda. Exactly. Event, the Context. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right, hit me. What are we about? Well, first, we got to, you know, you're, you you cover all kinds of things, not just tabletop stuff. That's you cover, true. again, you cover entertainment, you cover you know, movies, shows, all kinds of, of, of content, uh, so to speak. But a lot of the stuff that you cover is indeed nerdy kind of things, tabletop included, mm-hmm. of course. But yep. how did you kind of get involved in in nerderies, I guess? That was the, the weirdest way for me to possibly say that sentence, but you understand what I mean. When did kind of, um, you know, tabletop, gaming, all that kind of stuff kind of start enter enter into your life, whatever that means for you? I write for io9, which is sort of a, a relatively infamous, I would say, <laughs> science fiction and fantasy website founded about 10 years ago by Charlie Jane Anders and Annalise Newitz um, and has sort of been a, a pretty stalwart space in the blogosphere for as long as it's been around and has produced some like pretty incredible journalists and entertainment writers just across the board. By virtue of being a staff journalist at io9, I get a lot of access and I am asked to think very seriously about very silly things <laughs> like secret evasion or interview with a vampire or even our flag means death. A lot of that is just sort of comes with the the territory. Um, as for like how I got started in in procuring and collecting nerderies of various <laughs> sizes, shapes, and formats. Uh, I blame my father, <laughs> unfortunately. You had a real, like, thousand-yard stare when you said that. I blame my father. I blame my father. Uh, yeah, well, he was a kind of a big-ass nerd. He's still a big-ass nerd. He's still around. And when I was a kid... He didn't want to read me children's books because I would just memorize them and I would like speak over him. And he's like, I can't deal with this. He's like, I need to do something with this child. Like, this is absolutely absurd. So what he ended up doing was he read the Lord of the Rings series to me. So by the time I was like four, I had gone through it once or twice. (laughs) So my father was just like, well, I like these books. Like, sure, my kid will like handle it. So of course, it's, you know, I'm three or four and he's rereading Lord of the Rings to me. And I'm just like, ah, interesting. Well done, dad. (laughs) He was like really into poetry, especially like kind of like sea shanties and that sort of thing. So we read Treasure Island and I like memorized that poem was like fool's tales, doubloons and buried gold, uh, youngsters of today, the whole thing. He also read me Edgar Allan Poe for some reason. I don't know. My dad's a weirdo. Definitely, like, that's molding you in a direction. That's for sure. Giving you things to react to, so to speak, and absorb. Bless him. Yeah, bless (laughs) him. Uh, Read me Edgar Allan Poe. So, of course, by the time I was five, I was, like, quoting... I was like, I literally had like Nevermore (laughs) memorized. I would just, like, quote it around the house. And my dad thought it was great fun. And my mother was just like, what have you done? 
To my to my firstborn child. Yeah, I think our child is haunted. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Something yeah. maybe not okay is happening. Something Multiple wrong. ghosts may be visiting. I don't know. So really, like, I blame my father 100%. My mother was sufficiently nerdy in sort of like the mathematician way. Both my parents are into math. They're both engineers in their own right. And so they were you know, prone to nerdery, as the, <laughs> as one might suggest, one mm-hmm. might one might assume. Um, we watch Star Wars all the time. One of my mother's like favorite movies. One of my father's favorite movies. Um, but I think that like it really hit me uh, in t- the year two thousand when I was the vulnerable age of ten, <laughs> and two movies came out pretty much back to back in the year two thousand. One of those movies was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. (laughs) And my father was like, this looks rad. I'm going to take my 10-year-old child to go see this film. I mean, he was right about at least the first part, for sure. (laughs) So he took me to go see it. And I loved it. I was just (laughs) all about it. I thought it was the coolest motherfucking shit that I'd ever seen in my whole life. Like little 10-year-old me, big eyes, just like, whoa. Yeah. Look at all the swords. It was just like literally a revelation. We got out of that movie and my father was like, that was like really intense. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Let's go again. So, of course, like we went the next week. (laughs) So my father took me to go see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, not once, but twice when I was 10 years old. Hell yeah. I mean, (laughs) correct. Honestly, of of movies that I even just doing this show that I've heard from people whose like parents semi accidentally or maybe on purpose took them to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a relatively chill one. There's a lot of more scarring ones yeah. <laughs> that you could have gotten to. Absolutely. And of course, it's like this very like honorable bloodshed, a very like noble warrior's quest. I consider myself like pretty lucky to have had a father that was just like, yeah, let's go see like a Chinese action film. Sounds yeah. great. Like, yeah, I'll bring my like nine-year-old kid. <laughs> like, sure. They'll like shut up and enjoy it. I'm sure. So I was nine when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out. And then I was 10 that same year when the first Lord of the Rings film came out. Oh, yes. Again, same same age, same experience, 100%. Yeah. So that sort of nailed it, it like nails in the coffin <laughs> for me. I know for a lot of people, it was like Harry Potter was coming out around that time. And that was like a big thing. But for me, it really was the one-two punch of (laughs) Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then Lord of the Rings happening in in my formative years as a 10-year-old. And I'm like, I will never be the same again. (laughs) This is what I'm going to be caring about for some time, is these, whatever of these two things I can find, that's it. That's the thing. Basically between the movieplex and my library, (laughs) that's sort of like where I lived for a pretty long time. Yeah, for sure. Where did tabletop games kind of start entering into your life? Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I know, I, and I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't know if we even talked about it, mentioned it yet, but you've written games before. Yes. Um, obviously, you cover games. Yeah, kind of where did that get injected into into your life? Uh, I do love a game. I do love a tabletop <laughs> game. That's so true. Uh, this is always so embarrassing to admit, but I do it anyway every single time because I feel like it's important for <laughs> the, the asynchronous writing forward forum tabletop girlies to like have representation where it's Mm -hmm. just like yeah i was on a weird forum i made a character and i did freeform roleplay on the internet for decades (laughs) 
You are not the first person who has said that that was either their first or a very early formative experience of their role-playing stuff. So safe space. (laughs) Yeah. So it's sort of like mentioned every now and then on various social medias and various various forums and in like various like ways that we talk about role-playing. But I think forum style role-playing, asynchronous forum style, writing forward role-playing was really like my introduction to tabletop, to like the kind of like form of tabletop games that we... And like narrative story driven games that like are in vogue right now. <laughs> and that was always like my first confluence with picking up a character and like acting as that character and like interacting with other people and learning how to like collaboratively tell a story. Do you remember how you got sucked into that? Because that, that is like, it's not, I mean, the internet, who knows how any of us find anything on the internet half the time. But but yeah, do you remember like, what, was there a siren call? Was there a, like, a friend was like, oh, just wait. I think it was one of those things I was on like a fan forum for Avatar The Last Airbender when it was still airing. Yeah. So when like the, those first like three three seasons were still like airing weekly on Nickelodeon. I was obsessed with it. And I think I was like in middle school, maybe like just starting high school or something like that. And that led to a role playing forum for Avatar Last Airbender. And I think that's where I was like, oh, these exist. (laughs) I went to like one of those. I went to like a Naruto forum. I think there was an X-Men forum in there. There was like a Lord of the Rings forum, but they were really, really serious. And I was like, Mm-mm. I don't, I don't <laughs> like this. To my like eternal shame, there's like a Glee forum in there. <laughs> Absolutely was a Sherlock forum. I mean, again, this is just like such a beautiful snapshot of the era of television. Supernatural forum in there too. Absolutely. Like 100%. Yep. I am sent back in my own human past I to exactly that that era of life i was living in that era i was like fully living yes in the early 2000s and it was just like having a having a blast do you remember that first kind of transition from like hey it's a role-playing forum which is just kind of i i don't know it sounds like from your experience at least like kind of an unstru a semi-structured thing to like aha there are rules and there are books and there are maybe some dice and some whatever thing Turning that adjacent activity into, and now it's a game, and now it's a sit-down thing, or it's an online thing, Mm -hmm. and it is a tabletop game, and not one of the other parts of tabletop, if that makes sense. Totally. I was in college, and I had a bad experience when I tried to play D&D 4E with a bunch of dudes. (laughs) Story of, like, literally every femme presenting person's life is just like yeah i tried to play tabletop in college but the dudes the men uh were just a bummer (laughs) yep but the men but yeah but the men happened um so i sort of like did that for a little bit and then i was like this is trash i can just go onto my little forums and have way more fun (laughs) so Mm -hmm. i was just like it's back to like seducing dean winchester for me like (laughs) and i sort of like always kind of like kept it in the back of my mind that it was like something interesting and then a local comic book shop had like a drop in D&D thing. And I went to that, I think maybe like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, you know what? Games? Good. <laughs> good, actually. A controversial take here, but like games might be good. I'm not like <laughs> totally sure, but like maybe. I better spend another decade investigating whether games good. If games good. Yeah, exactly. That's always what I ask myself. Are games good? 
Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's worth checking in, you know, at least every once in a while. It's worth reevaluating every now and then. Precisely. I tend to come down uh, pretty pretty frequently on the side of games good, actually, but every now and then games actually bad. Sometimes games bad, actually. Sometimes, sometimes games bad. Sometimes games bad. Um, so yeah, so it was really like a decade ago where I sort of like got back into D&D and then sort of like began exploring other tabletop games. And it really was Trophy that got me into like writing tabletop games. Yeah. The brilliant thing about Trophy was not only was it like really focused, short form role playing with like minimal statistics and math, like me, math bad. Yeah. You don't really need to investigate that at all. Math bad. (laughs) Games, good question mark. Math bad, period. Yes. Yes, exactly. You get it. So Trophy like really appealed to me for a lot of reasons. Also, the really smart thing that Trophy did that I that I'm still impressed by to this day is that they created a very formalized structure for how to write an incursion Mm. for Trophy role playing. Mm -hmm. And they sort of laid it out very clearly. Here are the themes that drive the first circle. Here's the themes that drive the second circle. Here's the theme that drives the third circle. And also, like, here's what you want your characters to be thinking about. Here's what you want your characters to be experiencing. This is a circle where your characters, like, need to lose hope or gain hope or whatever. So it really, like, it went through that whole, like, a very traditional Western story structure within the context of how to write an adventure for Trophy Dark. And I was like, I can fucking do this. (laughs) Yeah, totally. You're not here just as a tabletop writer who has written a lot of very cool games, Um, but it it is true. It is factual. But also as obviously someone who covers games, who writes about it, who comments on them, who is kind of enmeshed in the space in a great many ways. So where did journalism kind of enter into your life? Were you always hoping to be kind of an entertainment journalist and go that direction? What's the origin story for you on that side of the of the professional spectrum? I uh, just kind of fell into it. Sorry. That's no. like the the big epic story is that like just kind of fell into it. Totally. I was working at like a local magazine and doing like graphic design for them. I mean, I loved writing and I've always loved writing and I've always wanted to like be a writer. So I would sort of like pretty continually like offer myself up to like, oh, yeah, like I'll go review the restaurant or like review this book or like write on whatever local thing is happening. And from there, I got a very boring corporate job at a nonprofit as one of their like marketing managers where I again inserted myself into like, oh, you guys have a blog? (laughs) I can blog. I can do a little blog. (laughs) Which made you very, very valuable at that exact point in in human history was being willing and able to blog a thing. Yes, exactly. So then basically while I was working for that company, I just really hated what I was writing. (laughs) It was just very, very boring. So I sort of tried to figure out how to get into like writing about something that I did like and did enjoy. And then when I got a job as like a full-time journalist, sort of like staff writer journalist for an ad magazine, kind of like ad week. Mm -hmm. That's when I started realizing that like figuring out, oh, this is how you pitch people. This is how you like talk to editors because I was suddenly like working as a staff writer slash editor. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this, it really demystified the process. And that's when I like really in earnest started pitching freelance writing to various places. And once I had a good enough portfolio of that kind of like freelance writing about the stuff that I was really enjoying movies, games, yeah, books. I 
managed to sneak into io9 and threaten them with machetes and eventually they decided to put me on payroll after i agreed to go on strike a week after i was hired (laughs) hey i am someone who if i'm interested in the topic or interested in the project or whatever i will work a billion million times harder at it and be way more interested and be way more focused is that also the case with you or was it just like i'm kind of bored of doing this and i think i would enjoy it a little better if i liked what I was writing about and was interested in? A little bit of both. It's more like I am good at writing and that's sort of been always like my my skill set is that yeah. I am a writer. You know, journalism doesn't pay, but it does send a paycheck. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and it just seemed like the easiest, the easiest way to sort of like write about the things that I love was to like find a company willing to pay me to have opinions, bad and good. <laughs> about whatever I wanted to have opinions about. And luckily, like I said, io9 was a really great fit thematically within my interests. And I was really lucky that the the editor-in-chief at the time when I was hired was David Ewalt, who has written about Dungeons & Dragons, like written a book and like is actively like rewriting that book right now for like a 10th anniversary edition or something. But he was very (laughs) specifically looking for a writer and a journalist who like could cover tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, And I was like, brilliant. That's (laughs) absolutely me. And and luckily, like I said, I had a a decent portfolio and I had bylines that were about games. And I had like, here's like three pieces that I've written for like tour.com, the MIT review and like something else about games you want me to be writing about your games let me write about games i want to write about games games and then here you are writing about games among other things yeah but i do have a touch of the family tism as i like (laughs) as i like to affectionately call it uh which is like when i get my teeth into a story i tend to work like nights and weekends to, (laughs) to get it out it's happened multiple times, but it's just one of those things. It's like when I get like when I get a story, like a capital S right. story, that's when I'm just like, oh, time to hyperfixate. See you in two weeks. Yeah, right. This is all my brain is interested in and cares about and can possibly care about and be interested in. Yeah, for sure. So I think something that I think is often kind of, I don't know, a little opaque to people and not necessarily for you, you you and your position in particular, but just kind of like generally for journalism in the 21st century. So what's your job? Like (laughs) either, you know, kind of the actual job description um, in terms of what are your responsibilities or what are your whatever, but also kind of like how do you envision yourself, I guess, in in kind of doing the, the work that you do? There's kind of two answers to this question. There is, what is your job as a staff writer at io9 owned by Geo Media, owned <laughs> by Great Hill Partners, a investment company? Yep. And my job as a staff writer for io9 uh, via Gizmodo, via Geo, via whatever, blah, 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 is to put out two to three articles a day. <laughs> and according to them, that's my job. Yep. And that's... <laughs> that's the job. That's the job. The way that I see myself is to acquiesce to the demands of my corporate overlords while also finding ways to bring to like talk about and bring forth stories that are like interesting and relevant and newsworthy and important Mm -hmm. and to bring forth stories that tell the truth in ways that people haven't considered or to look into problems that people are not willing to look into or to just like dig in to find like a good just a 
good goddamn story. Yeah. Finding something that's like, you know, what they're doing might not be illegal, but it sounds like it should be. <laughs> yeah. It's, it sounds like people will have opinions about it. So I I was sort of describing myself to like a friend or we were sort of like joking back and forth. And I like to call myself a truth teller and a little bit of a rascal. <laughs> you should petition your various corporate overlords to see if you can at least add it in addition to the two to three pieces a day uh, that just, you know, at least so you can put it on a business card. Yeah. Because, I mean, why not? Linda Canega, staff writer, parentheses, rascal. Right. Why not at least shoot the shot, right? I think. Yeah. I think is is worth doing. Yeah. So... When, you know, two to three pieces is is a good amount of things to put out solid. Uh, in a day. Solid amount. Uh, so it's a solid good amount to, to, to have to kind of churn out. Mm-hmm. Some of it is just like, hey, this thing is coming out or this thing is whatever. Yeah. And some of it is, hey, I have done a several weeks long multi-part investigation into several things across the various beats that you cover. Mm. How much, I guess, free reign do you have to kind of balance between those? And how how do you like to kind of balance your time? Um, I mean, I know sometimes that just retyping press releases is, is part of the job or what, you know, whatever variation that is. And that's just something you have to do. Yep. How do you navigate the push and pull of kind of chasing those stories that you find interesting and important versus the ones you have to do versus all the other kind of tendrils of keeping up with the content mill, I guess. Yeah, it's really hard. There are certain people that like really can nail certain beats very, very fast and very quickly. So Cheryl, one of our editors is just like, she's on the horror beat, like anything horror she's got. And she also like works books and like anything horror she's got. And like we, I, we work together for books. So luckily, like I get to occasionally focus on my beat, which is games and <laughs> like exceptionally queer, queer stories. And also as of like 105 days ago, labor, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. fairly exciting, actually. I'm really, really pleased that like I've been put on the labor beat. Full disclosure, I'm part of the WGA as a journalist. So it's really exciting to sort of see that organizational event happening and see the kind of uh, solidarity across a lot of unions and across like America in a really interesting way, in a way that's like not necessarily been the way it's been for the past like 30 or 40 years. So seeing that change and being able to report on it in real time is, is pretty exciting. And it means I get to like talk shit about billionaires, which is one of my favorite hobbies. <laughs> Add that right under rascal on the business card. Uh, millionaire shit talker. So yeah, so the balance is, is kind of hard. And it's one of those things where I I do have to like go to my editor and be like, I have this story. Yeah. Here's why I think it's important. Here's why I need time to do it. And so like, maybe I'm only on, I'm only doing like two stories a day or like uh, I do stories for half the day and then I work the the longer story the second half of the day. So the balance is difficult, especially like the past couple of months have been really hard just because like we work in a newsroom and shit happens. And sometimes you just like don't get the time that you need to like chase stories. So of course I have like literally five, (laughs) five investigations on a back burner right now that I'm literally just starting to like restart. So balancing out the kind of like churn versus the actual like real journalism that I think is genuinely beneficial is 
really difficult, actually. Yeah, of course, totally. I'd like to be in a position where I get to determine what that balance looks like with a little more agency and authority. Yeah. Are there stories that you particularly enjoy getting? You do a really great kind of games roundup that is just like, hey, here are tabletop games that are coming out this week and a little blurb. And here's the link to the Kickstarter or to the website or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's lovely. You've also, of course, again, done the OGL and like long form investing the any award winning, I believe, uh, as of this recording, uh, (laughs) OGL work. Um, And again, tons of other stuff dating back to when you started working at io9. But Mm -hmm. Is there any that you're like, when I get to do this, this is what makes my heart shine and makes me, you know, kind of like hold on with both hands and you chase down stuff and and do everything in my power to like get even this little thing out? Yeah, I think it's what I when I get to talk to people and I get to hear what they how they feel about what's happening and then mm-hmm. figuring out how to tell that story and figuring out how to incorporate why that individual story is important to the culture. And why, like, even one person's story, one person's truth can be, like, societally impactful. Hmm. One of my most recent examples of this was when the new Legend of Zelda video game came out. Even before it came out, I was like, Link, transgender. Yep, right. Link is a gender. And just sort of, like, (laughs) seeing all of those memes and, like, all the fan art with him having top surgery and even the, the fan art of Link as more female presenting and like as using like she her pronouns and being a cis woman i was just like what is it about this funky little dude yeah that makes like all of us trans people go crazy <laughs> like what is it about yeah. this, what is it about this little freak um <laughs> so i just sort of like you know sent out a request into the ether and i was like if you think link is just a cool gender let me know why and i like <laughs> i want to talk to you why is link such a gender So what ended up coming out of that like simple request was like a really fascinating and beautiful and like joyful response from the trans community about like how they see themselves in representation, how they like have like a very fluid idea of how gender works just in general and how if I like identify with Link and people are rooting for Link, maybe like people are rooting for me too. It was just like this really wonderful, truthful expression of how trans people see themselves in a world that's like really not very kind to them, just in general. So stuff like that is the the work that I really love doing and I find the most challenging and exciting. And I think I did that last year when I investigated racism in one D&D and why it was mm-hmm. like s- still like just not very good. Like they had made some improvements, <laughs> but they had like yeah. gone a couple steps back, especially with their handling of like mixed race and like, oh, I'm using air quotes here, mixed species yeah. peoples. And it was just like, it was just messy. It was just such a mess. So talking to people of color and people who identified as as mixed race was really just a fascinating exploration of how important games are and how important representation is and how important it is to like, if not get things right, then at least get things right enough that it's fixable and inoffensive. That was also a piece that I'm really proud of and got me death threats for like at least a month, which was really fun and exciting for me. (laughs) Yeah. And then I think another one that I did that I was really, really proud of was last year, there were rumblings of like just how shit the VFX industry was and just like how 
poorly people were treated, even when they were making like these multi-billion dollar films. And I was like, there's a story here. I know it. So I just started emailing people and calling people and digging in. And I wrote this piece that I'm really proud of about how the VFX industry is like killing itself. It's just eating itself alive. I interviewed so many people about so many things and I had to learn so much about VFX and about <laughs> yep, the VFX sure. industry. That's the stuff that I really like where I get to sort of like talk to people, find their story and then relate it to why it matters to the culture. And that's exciting to me. Sure. Yeah. Are you a naturally curious person, do you think, just dating back for forever and that's just how your brain works? Or is that something that you've honed or a combination of both? What's your worldview, I guess, as you kind of uh, explore and interact with the things in it? I think it's a little bit of everything. And I think it's also just kind of a sense of like general fearlessness. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that's sort of like a shit thing to like say about yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that like, it's true. It's like, I am not afraid to do anything. I'm not afraid to like talk to anyone. I'm not afraid to like go up to someone and be like, hi, I'm award-winning journalist, Lena Kadega. Like, do you want to chat? <laughs> Professional rascal. Do you want to chat? Professional rascal. Like, do you know me? Um, so it's one of those things where it's like a, an intense curiosity, a desire to know a truth, a kind of like sense of fairness that I just like want the world to have. When it comes down to it, especially for journalism, you have to have like an eye or an ear for like, what would make a good story? Yeah. The question that you always need to answer, whether it's like, oh, you're ragging on like Ron DeSantis because he wants to move on from Disney, but he's just a little guy. He's just a little guy. He would hit a little guy on his birthday. <laughs> Disney. It's sort of like knowing like how to like tie it in, how to make it relevant. Yeah. So Disney's suing Ron DeSantis. Who the fuck cares? And then it's just like, no, we all should care because he's just a little guy. He's just a little guy on his birthday. Just one little guy. Just a little guy. So it's it's finding out, I think, why people will care about a certain story. Like on its surface, if you went to an editor and you're just like, hey, Wizards of the Coast is changing a copyright act that they, right. they've had in place for 22 years. <laughs> a lot of editors would just be like, sounds like business is normal. What's the problem? Yeah. It's convincing people. It's convincing the editors. It's convincing the audience that like, no, this is important. This will change the way we talk about things, we need to talk about it. It's like with Wormwood, right? There is a story here. Mm -hmm. And originally everyone thought about thought it was the story that they had covered up this rape allegation. I'm just like, that sounds fishy, but that's not the story here. So it's just trying to like find the story, find what matters, find the truth, and sorting through all the other shit in order to get to like the thing that's really good. The thing that's a really good story. Totally. I think, again, also, I think a lot of people having received also many pitches myself, having written many pitches myself and having helped a few people in the games industry with various pitches mm -hmm. out to the world, to Twitter, to journalists, to whatever. Mm -hmm. What is a good story for you? You know, not specifically in kind of the obviously like copyright and <laughs> and of that sort of thing, but of, of, of the true non-Ron DeSantis little guys of someone sure. reaching out to you to say, hey, I have this thing, this story, this whatever, this game. Is there anything for you that just is, oh, hey, that's how, that's the best stuff is written this way or tells me this information or whatever? Is there you know something for you that you kind of distill it into? 
For games, it's one of those things where I am in a position where I am just like not capable of reviewing as many games as I want. Yeah. And I'm not capable of like writing about as, game, as many games that I want to write about. So I am unfortunately like very limited in what I can do for any individual indie game. Yeah. Anyone can email me their game and be like, can you feature this on the gaming shelf? And I'll be like, yes. There's no barrier for entry. I'm just like, yes, you can. The only like real string attached to that is that it has to be timely. It has to be like you have to have released within like four right. weeks. Like I don't feature a game if it's older than a month. Sorry, guys. And I don't feature a, a Kickstarter if it hasn't been Kickstarted yet. So it's just like all you got to do is make sure it's timely and I'll put it on mm -hmm. the gaming shelf. Like I, it's not a lot, but it's like what I have the capacity to do, even as I am like writing two to three blogs a day and also like doing these big investigations and conducting interviews with celebrities. <laughs> and being just a normal human being who goes on picnics occasionally and occasionally uh, gets to hang out with their dog. Yeah. Gosh, I do love my dog a lot. I wonder where she is. <laughs> Yeah, so that's for games. Every now and then I get a game that comes through that I'm just like, this is a featured game and I need to like know a little bit more about it to like get it a little bit more attention. And a lot of the times that's just like, I can't even tell you what it is, man. It's just like a gut feeling. It's just like the art is good. The vibe is good. Like the way that you talk about your game is good. Like the idea is good. Like, and of, of course, like good in this case is both an opinion and subjective. Right. And unfortunately, uh, I am unknowable. <laughs> so unfortunately, it's just one of those things like something sometimes shit just hits right, you know, sometimes yep. it's good. Totally. Sometimes game's good. Sometimes game good. Like, you still hit the stuff, though, right? Of, like, where's the idea? Where are you excited about it? Like, is there cool art or cool something to latch on to? That's all an answer. You know, that's yeah. all very real and very fair, I think. When it comes to, like, older games, a lot of the time it's like, oh, well, like, I've gotten, like, a bunch of games that are sort of, like, comedies about vampires and, like, what we do in the shadows is coming out soon. Like, let's pull together a list of games that you could use to play through, like, an yeah. episode of what we do in the shadows and, like, you know, there you go, 12 indie games right there. Uh, every now and then it's some someone like I'm just like oh Grant Howitt's putting out another game but it's gonna be a fucking banger <laughs> like <laughs> better like call up their their publicist slash Rowan Rook and Deckard and like make sure I have an interview on the books like stuff like yeah. that where I'm just like if you have a reputation in this space and we have talked before and you have something like big coming out that's also like a draw yeah I love small indie games and I will never like talk down to them. But if you have like a, like a eat the Reich basically coming out, like I'm going to mm -hmm. be interested. Yeah. Right. Especially when it hits six figures of funding or whatever, like eat the Reich has. In a day. Gosh. And people are just like, what about hardcovers? I'm like, it's a 72 page book guys. First of all, chill out. And then people are like, what about like more characters that I'm like, do you not trust Grant Howitt? Like what's, <laughs> what's happening here? Like, come on guys, get yourselves together. Trust the game designer to like make a game. Yeah. And then judge them violently. <laughs> Once it's out. Yes. That's what I do. Besides like those kinds of pitches, I often get pitches as like, God bless them. I get so many emails that are just like, I figured something out. I've made a connection. And I'm just like, holy shit, you've made a connection. <laughs> 
So I get a ton of emails like that where I'm just like, okay, this is like an investigation that I can follow up on. And then they become like my one of my primary sources and I communicate them and I get more information. And then I do my own like verification. I do my own digging and I see if there are other sources who are willing to talk to me. So that's how I get like a lot of my investigations going is someone literally just like emailing me or DMing me and saying like something is fishy. Here's what I found out. And I'm just like, you could be like solving murders. What are you doing? Um, so i get a lot of pitches that way and i try to figure out like is this enough of a story is this something Mm -hmm. that i just should report to the police and move on from like (laughs) so it's it's a lot of like figuring out like it this is important enough for someone to like reach out to me a journalist who has been known to release important big journalistic investigations but is this enough of a story that i can dedicate hours of my life right endless hours of my energy like and thought because i think about this stuff all the time like i'm on an investigation right now that i'm like continually thinking about that i have like a little note thing in my phone where i'm just like oh here's a question that i need Mm -hmm. answered and like what is worth spending that like level of energy on and a lot of the times it's the stuff that's like the ogl it's the stuff that's like Gripner, it's the stuff that's like wormwood those are the things that's like that's the bar that i have for like okay this is worth obsessing over yeah this is worth calling up my father and just being like so that touch of the family tism i'm gonna do a little bit more for the next two weeks like <laughs> how's it looking over there <laughs> yeah that's something that like i will talk about with my friends like within journalistic integrity and like journalistic right. like boundaries but i'll just be like man i'm working on this story and it's crazy and like i can't tell you about it but i'm going to tell you about something else and you will be able to like talk to me about it and it's just like the mind palace just expands yep. and i'm like yeah. <laughs> going crazy because i'm just thinking about it all the time those stories are harder to come by, but they're generally when people are doing something bad. <laughs> As investigations often, unfortunately, kind of entail. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense or a good definition of like who your audience is? And and what I mean by that is like, is there a cutoff of how niche you can get? You know, of like OGL that impacts a lot of games, a lot of players, a lot of other things, but per that hypothetical editor is like, it's a copyright thing with a tabletop game, tabletop game with a Chris Pine movie in it. But like, you know, of like, but it, it can keep getting more granular and it can keep getting kind of smaller and smaller. So do you have a sense of where that cutoff of like general public versus would most nerds care about this versus whatever? I have to be able to tie a story into the culture Mm -hmm. and I have to be able to justify why the story will be important to more than just the niche that it is appropriate for or like aimed at. One of the things that I did last year, um, the Gripner story, that was one that is just like, oh, someone is selling like D&D NFTs. Who's going to care about this? And I'm just like, listen, it's technology. It's basically unknowns coming into the scene and saying that they know what's best for the scene. Yeah. It's people trying to reinvent the wheel. It's a beloved property that people like literally base their entire personalities around. I can make this important to more than just the people who are interested in D&D NFTs. The onus is really on me to expand a story beyond its niche and to find 
reasons for people to read that story, even if they would not Mm -hmm. typically read it. Like the thing, the Wormwood story, for example, another like kind of weird pitch where I'm just like, I think some shit is going down at this high end luxury gaming accessory manufacturer. And I want time to look into it. And my editor's like, who cares about people making furniture in in like Massachusetts? And I'm just like, listen, I think there's a story here. I think that there's something here that's like, will speak to the larger culture and I want to find it. And I did. <laughs> they said with no amount of pride or uh, I told you so kind of energy. No, I just, I just did it. And that's my job. And I did it. I took something that's like very, very niche and weird. And I was able to make it important mm-hmm. and make it like relevant and make it like accessible in a way that's just like, this is the kind of story that people who don't care about tabletop games at all will want to read because it's this like story about like bosses being kind of shitty bosses. And it's this story about like people trying to do their best and ending up not doing very good at all. And it's the kind of story that people can like really relate to in a lot of ways and people can read and get something out of it. And it's just like, besides being like a story about the culture, it's just like a good story to read. Like you can read that article and you're just like, I get it. Mm -hmm. So something that I I wanted to talk about to entertainment is like big studios. There's there's unions, there's guilds, there's like publicists, there's structure and a lot of power. There's a lot of people out there who can check gates for sure. Yeah, exactly. But there's but there's a lot of structure. And and Mm -hmm. sometimes the structure, as I imagine, helpful. We have a PR person you could talk to, but also sometimes it is oppressive and a bureaucratic nightmare tabletop is sort of that but also aggressively not that where it is just a weird conglomeration of indie people but there's also corporations Mm. that don't get a lot of scrutiny um from kind of like larger media and that sort of thing and it's so relational and so all this other stuff yep there's a lot of ambiguity and you're in the middle of it as a creator as a commenter as a reporter, as an investigator, and like wearing all these different hats all at once in a very messy, ill-defined space. How do you manage reporting on such a diverse spectrum of creators, of businesses, of multi-million dollar corporations, Mm -hmm. where it is so piecemeal and not structured like kind of the other end of your job where there's again there's there's guilds and there's bazillion dollar corporations and all that the really cocky answer is i Mm -hmm. handle it with a deft hand (laughs) um no the real answer is that i am very aware of how much capacity i have as a journalist and unfortunately the time that i can spare for smaller and indie games is not as much as I would like. And that is sort of an unfortunate byproduct of the fact that Wizards of the Coast makes 10 times the money that anyone else does and has the SEO juice that GO Media craves. And is just sort of like an unfortunate byproduct of the fact that I work a breaking news desk. Yeah. The other answer is that I constantly, I do my best I'll put it this way. I do my best to make myself as available as I can be for indie games and smaller publications. And if someone comes to me with like an interesting idea or an exclusive, I can run with it. Interviewing Grant Howitt and Kieran Gillen last year was really great. 
uh, that sort of led to me like leading that conversation at Gen Con, which I had a blast doing. And there was a something earlier this year where like Tyler Crumrine of Possible Worlds Games was doing this really interesting scholarship exchange, I guess, where like he worked with a writer and an artist and he like had them exchanging media in order to like produce a game. And I'm like, this is a very exquisite corpse, and, but like with a lot more rules, like let's get into it and see what that's about. And I was able to like write something quick up about that. Again, kind of goes back to the balance of like figuring out how much time I can actually spend on the stuff that I really want to spend time on. The wild, wild west is just like people are going to do what people are going to do. And no one's (laughs) very, very few people can act like professionally, um, which is just kind of like the the name of the game when you are an indie creator. It's just like balancing your professional versus your personal. But so often for a lot of indie creators, especially um, indie folks who are doing APs and sort of like being going on like that kind of like professional path, their personality is the product in a lot of ways. Like AP actors are startups. That's the way that companies look at them is like, we are investing in a startup. That's the way that other people look at them where it's just like, okay, you are just starting out in this space and like, you need to make your connections before you can like actually start to earn money. And it's the way that like they treat themselves with the way that like they, they act with each other, sort of like building each other up and doing these sort of like favors and exchanges until they can sort of reach whatever goal they have to say, like, we've made it. Honestly, like I don't really I don't I only report on APs every now and then um, simply because it is just like such a weird space. It's still like moving around in very interesting ways. And it's moving around in ways that are very similar to the ways that the entertainment industry moved around. Yeah, I was going like to 10 years ago, not necessarily in ways that like I find super interesting. <laughs> So there's just like a lot of that. Also, just like dealing with PR people. Uh, Some of them are great. Shout out to Jeremy Bonds, who's the critical role PR person, who is absolutely darling. And God bless him. He deals with my shit. Um, (laughs) I have like apologized to that man in person because I'm just like, I'm sorry that I make your job so hard. (laughs) Like, I am so sorry (laughs) to be like a professional pain in your ass. Thank God. He's just like, we're just doing our jobs. And I'm like, we are just doing our jobs. But still, like, thank you for dealing with all of this. They say as they gesture wildly in their general direction. (laughs) I think I would rather deal with PR people because at least you know where you stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. When you're dealing with something as large as a Wizards of the Coast, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like so dominating and Paizo to a a much lesser extent. Yeah. And Critical Role obviously also is kind of like the big of the big companies, but it's Wizards of the Coast, right? Sure, it is. How do you look at a business that is that large and that central Mm -hmm. to the space? How do you kind of look at it where it's so dominating and so influential in countless ways. What's your approach? What's your perspective? What's your goals when you are looking at like a kind of almost monolith in a, in, in, in certain ways mm-hmm. um, and interacting with them and interacting with stories about the, the company? The key to working with Wizards of Coast for someone like me who is literally on their shit list, <laughs> that's not a joke. I, I know a couple people who are on the shit list, in fact. Yeah. yeah. And I can imagine you are very high on said shit list. The 
the way that I approach it is to be tactical, not reactionary. There's a lot of stuff that I just kind of let slide. There's so much that I'm just like, I could be like a little bit of a, almost said like a real bad word. Uh, <laughs> could be a little that bit. You of could a, follow up on. Yeah. That you could, could write something about, we'll say. I could be like a, a big rascal. <laughs> More than a little bit of a rascal and sort of like write about this. But a lot of it is just like, it's not worth, you know, poking the dragon in a very mm. literal sense. And then there are other things where I'm just like, like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in with my little lance and like stick it and see what see what comes out. <laughs> there was a period of time where gaining access to Wizards of the Coast was not a priority for them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Giving me access to Wizards of the Coast was not a priority for them in a way that was noticeable and recognized by my peers in the industry. I just kept doing really good work and I kept reporting on them and I kept like being a pretty neutral person. Like I, you know, press releases came out. Sure. Here's a press release. There's a ton of like great racially inclusive art for the Magic the Gathering set. Like, sure, whatever. Here's like a, a slide, a hundred plus slideshow of art, you know? So it's it's one of those things where being as neutral as possible until like you are sort of pushed to say something because it's important to say. So sort of gauging how important it is to actually get something out there is very important. And that's the same, that's like, that's not just Wizards of the Coast, frankly, that's literally like, you know, that's Critical Role, that's Warner Brothers, that's, you know, the AMPTP is sort of figuring right. out like, how much access are we willing to risk to yeah. tell the truth? And for me, I have to be mitigated by my very, my very much more like level headed boss where I'm just like, I would like to eat them alive today, please. And my boss yeah. is like, no, no, right. no, reel it in. <laughs> so I'm very much the kind of person and the kind of journalist who's like, there is not a single bridge out there. I wouldn't burn down to tell the truth. <laughs> there just isn't like, if there's like a, a real true important story, I will burn that bridge in a second. And I will tell that story regardless of whether or not you want me to tell that story. And I think that that's something that I'm still learning how to balance as a journalist, because this is definitely like a constant back and forth with me. It's like, how much, how much harder do I want to make my day-to-day -day job? Sometimes the answer is just like, I'm willing to make it as hard as fucking possible. Right. And then there are other days where I'm just like, nah, I want an easy week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I get that. A lot of it is comes down to judging like what's worth putting that relationship at risk and also figuring out like how to figure out like what to say and like how to say it to them and how when to email them and what to tell them about what I'm writing. And again, this is literally everyone. This has been like Warner Brothers at one point where I had like unnice things to say about the boys and suddenly Amazon is calling my manager and it's just like, I thought we had such a good relationship. And I'm like, whoopsies. I am not talking about just Wizards of the Coast. This right. is literally, I just want to like make that clear in case any of anyone yeah. from Wizards of the Coast is listening. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe they have like a Linda Kadega division at this point. I don't fucking know. <laughs> it's literally everyone. It's like, yep. I think that it's also like made me very aware of like how this plays out in my own life where it's just like, what am I willing to like risk in order to do what I want? And how important is it to do what I want? And luckily at work, my work is primarily based around like 
telling the truth and like right. getting to like a real thing. And that's so important to me in my life. And I'm just like, it makes decisions a lot easier. But mm-hmm. yeah, access is always a consideration, but I never let it hold me back. Yeah. Yeah. Has your job post OGL in the t- in the tabletop space, has it gotten harder, easier or different or the same since? Do you feel like it changed things for you? It absolutely did. I think it would be delusional to say that series of reports and that incident and that like movement from Dungeons and Dragons did not change my career because it absolutely did. It has made it both harder and easier because harder because obviously the biggest tabletop role-playing game company in the world right. knows my name and it's not flattering <laughs> and they are not flattered by some of the things that I say about them. That is like genuinely like made my job harder, like pissing yep. off Wizards of the Coast, I can say like definitively has made my job harder mm-hmm. and I would do it again in a second. Uh, <laughs> would not mm-hmm. hesitate to do it again. Yeah, Wizards of the Coast may hate my guts, but like, do you know how many people trust me right now? Do you know how many people are like genuinely interested in what I have to say? And do you know how many people are literally saying that if they have to go somewhere to get their news about like tabletop role playing games, they go to like Linda Cadega? And I'm just like, that's incredible and huge and such a like massive responsibility. And also like, doesn't feel real. Yeah, totally. And then also made it a lot easier because now people trust me and people will like email me or DM me and just be like, hey, I think this guy's starting shit. And I'd be like, okie dokie. Let's see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it has made it easier because I've become more accessible to the community, which I think is important as I consider what I do to be very much a public service in its own right. And I think that if I was just doing it for for fun or whatever, I probably wouldn't do what I'm doing. <laughs> If I was doing like citizen journalism as a hobby, I probably would not be doing like the intense investigations that I'm doing now. But again, like I consider what I a lot of what I do, like a public service and a public good and something that serves a public need. And I don't mean that in a way that's like big headed or I don't mean that in a way that's like mm-hmm. I'm doing something really noble here. It's much more just like, no, this is like a service that I'm like providing for the community. And this is something that like I think the community needs. And I think that a lot of people are in positions where they could do it, but they don't have the structure. They don't have the support. They don't have like the system yeah. backing them up. I firmly believe that literally like any tabletop journalist the ones that i've mentioned before like charlie hall chase carter christian hoffer dan Arndt. i think that like if any one of them had gotten the ogl they would have known what to do with it but they may or may not have had the support or the structure or like the space to do what i did i work at a giant media conglomerate i have a lawyer who like teaches at columbia literally in my corner saying like this is great like publish it we'll defend (laughs) you no matter like we'll we'll go to court with this and that's a privilege and a power that i know that not a lot of people have and i take that very seriously and i very very earnestly consider it like an honor to be able to do that for this community Having my name attached to the OGL has made it easier for people to come to me with stuff, but it has also made it harder for me to balance things and has made it easier for me to like email someone and be like, hi, I'm Linda Kadega. And people will be like, I know you. And I'm just like, horrible. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Off to a start. Okay. Got it. I was at a party for a certain company that 
would never have invited me to that party at Gen Con. I got let in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Got it. Say no more. Got it. Sure. Understood. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I literally had someone at the bar just, I like introduced myself. I'm like, hi, I'm Lynn. Nice to meet you. And this guy just stared at me and he's like, you're yeah. Linda Cadega. And I'm like, son of a bitch. I need to leave. <laughs> I'm just like, shh. They spotted me. God damn it. Shh. Quiet. <laughs> you gotta wear you gotta wear the the you know a disguise next time you know oh, of like a good good mustache a good you know whatever something it was truly one of those moments where it's like i did not get into journalism to be recognized at bars that's actually like the opposite of why i got into journalism i got into journalism to like visit people at cd bars and trade like funny little information yeah. like vanilla folders across the room like across like a of table that's why i got into journalism but no now i have someone like buying me like an orange crush thing out of like a capri sun packet it just has way <laughs> too much alcohol in it it's just telling me like i love your stuff and i'm like thank you i want to die it's very specific but a lovely a lovely anecdote regardless that is kind of another question that i had is especially in the 21st century you're online and you're posting your stuff and you're getting tagged and the blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So online. Balancing being a part of the space and a recognizable individual mm-hmm. in the space mm-hmm. who's also reporting on the space, mm-hmm. but is like adjacent because it's all online, right? And it's all like the people you're reporting on are right over there on whatever Elon Musk is calling Twitter. And the indies who are like, hey, why aren't you paying attention to us are right there. And like, you also have your games and you also are just tweeting about writing fanfic, about whatever you want to do and being a human, right? Yeah. So what's your experience being a figure? How does that feel? Um, And how do you experience it and how do you handle it or how do you ignore it? You're right. And I I hate it. Yeah. I think the thing that always keeps me humble like one of the things that keeps me humble is the fact that there's a role players guild in Beacon, New York, where I live, and I'm not a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't invite me. They didn't know I was here. Like, it's one of those things. I'm just like, ah, my insignificance is comforting. <laughs> yeah, now, I'm big in certain in certain circles, but not every circle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things where I'm just like, ah, yes, insignificance suits me. <laughs> well done, Linda. <laughs> um, so it's stuff like that. Um, I think that like being a figure in the space is very weird because I'm not going to lie, like attention is fun. Right. Yeah, sure. Look, man, attention is fun. It's nice like tweeting and like getting responses back. Like, you know, that's normal human behavior. And I don't feel a lot of shame about that. Balancing being a figure in the space and reporting on it is definitely weird because the space is so, so small and fractured. And it's one of those things where people are really eager to have those voices of authority and the places that they can go for news and updates, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's a responsibility I take very seriously, but at the same time, I'm just like, oh, people like pay attention when I say stuff. Yeah. And there was like a period, I think, for about like a month or two after the the OGL happened when I like gained 20,000 followers basically overnight. (laughs) I didn't quite realize the impact of what that meant. Yeah, sure. And I still don't think that I'm really perfect at that. I don't think anyone can be, but I think that I'm a little bit more aware of like what having that many people getting direct access to me in a way. Right. My DMs are open, you know, like I get so many DMs from so many people and it's all very flattering um, unless I get like death threats or hate, whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's different buckets. Eh, typical Saturday, frankly. <laughs> 
learning how to balance that has been a pretty steep learning curve. Sure. It's definitely made it so that like, I don't talk about the games that I write. And I don't talk about the fiction that I write. I don't talk about anything. And I try to limit self promotion mm-hmm. beyond my writing to yeah, the story that you wrote. Yeah, that's I try to limit my self promotion just to the stories I write and the opinions that I have about my beats. And I try to like really make sure that like my public presence and my public persona well, like, yeah, still like goofy, goofy, silly, kooky. And like people can go through my <laughs> likes and just be like, they're into that. Uh, don't do it. You will see like a lot of Trigun porn and I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah, but also I'm not going to retweet it, but I'm not going to apologize for it. Both both right. can be true. That's the thing. I'm just like, I'm just going to do like a sneaky little like <laughs> <laughs> and no one has to know. Uh but I think that that's, that's something that I'm very aware of. Like, if I was, like, only had, like, the 5,000 followers that I had or 4,000 followers that I had when I, like, before I broke the OGL, I would be unhinged on my Twitter. <laughs> like, I'm already a little weird on Twitter. I would be fully crazy. <laughs> no one would know what to do with me. Just a lot of anime happening. <laughs> <laughs> I have the kind of both the privileged pleasure and complicated nature of having a brand, right? Of sure. like, cool, I run the Reckless Attack podcast account. Mm. And I also have my own account that's like sort of public, but is separate enough, right? Where I can do different things, different places. And you're Linda. Yeah. You have a Linda and that's that's it. Do you miss your more pseudo anonymity or is it just a different thing and a different phase of kind of your experience? I think it's just a different phase of my experience because much in the same way that I have like sort of described a lot of like tabletop performers as startups. So I have to consider like my Twitter is part of my brand. Yeah, right. My brand is journalism. My job is journalism. Just like (laughs) Ken's job is beach. My job is journalism. Mm -hmm. I am very aware of how my Twitter can like turn people on or off to yeah literal journal, like really important stories that like people need to read and need to be out there. And I'm just like, it can't be like too weird, <laughs> which is fine. Cause I like, I don't know. I have other outlets for weird. I have like, I know it's hard to believe, but I, I do have real friends. <laughs> <laughs> I have a dog for starters. I have a dog for starters. Oh, she just came by and like sat down, lying down in front of me. Yeah. But like, I do have real friends who I can just be like really weird with. <laughs> and I do have like real friends that I can like really yeah. game with. And I do have people that like, I consider it like a privilege and I'm lucky enough that like, I can be as weird as I want with like dozens of people and I don't necessarily need to be performatively weird for 25,000 people on Twitter. I can just be weird with me and my little friends and I'm just like <laughs> still getting the weirdness out at least. You have yeah. have a, a weirdness outlet. Yes. Totally. Also like I'm reminded that like my mother follows me on Twitter and she like checks it frequently i don't know what to tell you my mother's like up on it she like shows up in streams when i'm on stream she'll probably listen to this podcast (laughs) hi hi mom thanks for coming thanks robin but it's just one of those things where it's just like yeah like i'm very aware that there's like a public part of me that like has to be public because so much of journalism and so much of like the news cycle now is 
how do you personally relate to the person telling you news? And it's that way, like for better, for worse, but that's not changing. And that's like a lot of news influencers and a lot of like, which brutal to say that out loud. That's the, yeah, that was one of the tweets that like inspired part of that question of the, the influencers and the clout conversation and the, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And like citizen journalists and people who are like making Mm -hmm. reaction YouTube videos, like there's so much of that, that there's like, there is a place for that. And there is like a way for people to get that expression out and to practice journalism and to like practice their own brand of reporting. For better, for worse, people will associate and want to associate a person with the news. And that has been the case since we had news anchors, right? Yeah. since we had literally like town criers saying, I am a town crier, here is the news, pay attention. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's nothing new. It's just evolving very fast. And it's one of those things that like, oh, I take seriously. I guess. <laughs> so, mm. so I want to like still be funny and weird and still be like myself, but I'm also like very aware. It's like, if I am putting like anime porn on like 25,000 people's dashboards, Will they take me seriously when I'm just like, <laughs> here is a massive like yeah. investigation where I talk to 50 people and we're discussing like sexual assault. So balance. Balance. Exactly. I value my reporting and I value my job and I really respect the career that I've chosen so much more than I care about being silly, goofy on Twitter. <laughs> sure. Yeah, Absolutely talking about those kind of priorities and the readjustment and the eyes on you, but also of the relationship management and all of that. You you already kind of, I think, alluded to it. Do you have kind of like rules for yourself, boundaries that you set when you are so enmeshed in things and so there's so much access to you and there is that blending of online personality who provides news and also opinions on the news and has Mm -hmm. cute dog pictures, you know, like as best you can, segmenting that and making sure all of it stands alone to an extent, right? Where you are still Mm -hmm. a reporter doing investigations and you are still a goofy goose (laughs) doing whatever and able to like the occasional Trigun tweet. Now and then. Or is that just something where you just are navigating day to day? Just, I think that a lot of it's navigating day to day. I do have like a couple rules. One of them is that like, if I am disagreeing with someone either like on a personal level or like because of a professional like opinion Mm -hmm. that I'm holding or a professional like thing that I'm doing. I try my best not to like tag anyone on Twitter and I try my best to like obfuscate like exactly who or what I'm talking about simply because like, oh, I have like 25,000 followers. That's not nothing. So generally, if I have something negative to say, whether that's like negative personally, I usually just like don't say it because that's dumb. But if it's something negative professionally, I try not to call people out by name on Twitter. I'll like name them in the article and I'll like, I always try to be as fair as possible when I'm like giving negative critique or I'm saying something bad about someone. Cause I mean, that's just like so much of this space. Yeah. Or like a lot of the space is reliant on like keeping other people happy and saying what you need to say in order to like make them happy. Totally. It's all, it's personality management and relationship management. And, you know, so much of it is indie, you know, even, even the actual companies are still just indie folks. So yeah, the balance. 
Yeah. I mean, Critical Role owns itself. Yeah. It's still an indie outfit. Like it make it's making millions of dollars and you can't ignore that, but it owns itself. No one owns Critical Role but Critical Role. That in itself means that like if someone at Critical Role suddenly decides that like they don't want Lena Kadega talking to them, Lena Kadega's not gonna talk to them. Yeah. You know? Um, and there's like no amount of like massaging that's gonna like fix that. So I try really hard to if I have like critique of something it goes into the article where I can actually like have nuance and like where I can actually yeah. explain things and mm. where I can be like, here is my reasoning and here's why I think it's fair. And here is why like, this is ha- what informs my opinion. Here's the context. And then on Twitter, very much like candle obscure, not for me. Yeah. Right. But if there's something that I really love and I want to like make sure that people like know how to find it and get to it, that's when I'm like shouting out everything. And I'm just like into the odd, an incredible satire that like self cannibalizes its gameplay in order to like, emphasize the themes and i'm just like here's everyone associated with it please like them yeah that makes a lot of sense that's lovely shout about the things i like but like don't shy away from stating when there are things out there that i don't like um and i'm especially aware that like so much of criticism is justifying your opinions in a way that Mm. sounds real real smart or in a way that sounds like convincing to other people and there's so much of this where i'm just like there's not a lot of room for negative opinions in this space, simply because if you have a negative opinion about a piece of art, it immediately becomes personal. It becomes an opinion about an individual person. A lot of people in the space, a lot of creators in the space, a lot of like the writers, artists, role players, professional like tabletop APers, we're all still trying to navigate what is a personal critique versus a professional critique. Yeah. What is an opinion versus a, like someone stating something factual? Right. So it's just hard. You're totally. I, I can imagine this be a little mitigated by the fact that you're doing a lot of like reporting on Wizards of the Coast, right? And bigger entities and more corporate entities. Do you try to avoid or be aware of, I don't even know what the right verb is because I don't know how you're experiencing it, but making more personal relationships with people in the space? I am friendly with you and I know you and maybe we've done a panel together. Right. But uh, what if one day I need to write something about you or whatever? Or, hey, your big company put out a game that I thought was kind of a stinker and now I need to say something about it. You know, like, do, yeah. is that in your head? Do you work around that or do you just, again, kind of take it as, as stuff comes up? That's always something that I consider, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's something that I'm very aware of. It's something that I've like gone into this space as a journalist knowing where I'm just like, I am not anyone's friend. Mm -hmm. You know, we can be friendly, maybe every now and then, like there is a genuine friendship that happens. But for the most part, and like this has to be the rule or else like I cannot report on this space is like, if you do something wrong, I'm not your friend. Mm -hmm. If you fuck up, I am not your friend. People should not trust me. Mm -hmm. My audience trusts me, and that's what's most important to me, is that the people who read my work trust me, but nobody should trust me not to, like, report on them. Right. I try to, like, balance that as much as possible, but, like, I am definitely of the variety. It's like, there is not a bridge out there I won't burn. We can be as friendly as friendly as anything, and we maybe, like, can even have, like, a genuine friendship. But the minute you fuck up or you do something, like, Mm -hmm. really bad the minute that something happens and i'm just like if i publish this will i ruin this relationship i will again not let that stop me from like publishing a story that needs to be told or like 
telling the truth in a way that is fair and respectful and honest. I'm friends with a lot of individuals and I like a lot of individuals. Like I have told, again, the critical role PR person is lovely. I appreciate him so much. He does a lot of work for me, but I've told him I'm not his friend. Right. <laughs> and I told him like the minute critical role fucks up, I'm going to be there. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I get that and I respect that. And I look forward to making sure that never happens. And I'm like, great. <laughs> we understand each other. And again, it's a lot of that comes down to the fact that like, I'm a journalist and people like will respect that profession. There are other people and a lot of the scene that is still mm. sort of reckoning with the fact that there are people like me who are not interested in being nice. Mm-hmm. Just like not interested. I'm just like not, I'm not interested. Yeah. You want to, you want the story, not the friendship validation kind of thing and, and whatever yeah. associated with it. Yeah. Again, I have the privilege and the ability to not rely on, on being nice to people in order to Mm -hmm. put food on my table. My job is journalism. Um, My job is not network, cultivate friendships, Mm -hmm. lift each other up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My my job is not startup. My job is journalism. And it's just like a very, very different way of operating, specifically because I do not necessarily have to rely on myself to get a paycheck. And that's a, a privilege a lot of people, especially like people who are in content creation, especially a lot of people who are doing influencing, especially a lot of people who are working alongside and in service to companies, like even for like gigs don't have. Mm -hmm. It is because I have that privilege that I can also say I'm not interested in being nice or making friends or doing X, Y, and Z. Like, and it's something that I am grateful for as a journalist and also like a little bummed out about because I'm just like, well, I have to be prepared at any moment to like tell a good friend like, hey, your company is like fucked up and I'm going to do something about it. It's not super fun. Mm -mm. No, Um, it's not something I look forward to. And it's never something that I'm like excited about. It's always something that I'm just like, I have to like cut off the parts of myself that I need to cut out in order to be like in order to do this public service, which is journalism. So it's mostly by reminding myself that I'm a stolen cold bitch. <laughs> a cold operator who needs to just execute occasionally. Yeah, totally. Well, as we're kind of winding down, I want to like, I want to talk about the fun you stuff. So uh, just a little bit of first, do you have the time and energy to get to actually play games just as a normal human being? I do. actually i actually get a chance to play a lot of games like literally just this friday i ran a game of pirate borg oh in public (laughs) (laughs) it was a there was like a life-size clue happening it was like a board game night and they were like you can bring whatever you want so i like dm'd the guy running it and i was like hey i I have like this role-playing game that i think would be really fun that i can do like a drop in one shot and he was like yeah totally just like come through so i showed up there at like seven o'clock with my little dm screen and like my little map (laughs) and like my little pirate minis so i you know dm'd a four-hour game of pirate borg for four of my friends and one stranger lovely (laughs) lovely yeah and then um i I am in a game of Orbital Blues, 
I've heard good things about that recently, the last couple of weeks. I'm having a good time and I'm not the DM. Isn't that crazy? I was going to ask, are you, and again, we, we haven't even really gotten to talk much about the games that you have written, which are actually very lovely and good. Please go check it out. There is a Linda Cadega uh, itch page, uh, which we will link to in the show notes. Okay. Divorcing all of the journalism parts as much as you are able to exercise sure. that from your brain. Yeah. Do you view yourself more as a player, as a as a GM, as a designer slash writer, kind of in in your table, your preferred tabletop experience, um, or or all of the above, or none of the above? I think it's really hard for me to think of myself as just one of those things. Sure. I wouldn't say I do them all in equal measure, but I certainly do them all, uh, and I enjoy all of them differently, but none like less than the other. I had a really good time. Like I said, I had a hugely fun time DMing Pirate Borg uh, and I was able to like make my friends like laugh and like <laughs> yeah. cry. And like there was one moment where they were like, just like, are we the villains? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> you've fallen into my trap. <laughs> so it was, you know, just really fun stuff that's like we're able to do together. Um, yeah. So I'm, I did Pirate Borg recently. I'm in an Orbital Blues campaign. I've sort of like acted as a a lead character in a wander home campaign mm. that we did and mm-hmm. i was only i only like did that lead character for like one or two sessions out of like four or five so i could so people like could understand how to play that game got it yeah independently mm-hmm. without the need of like a gm and without the need of like a leader lead character so i played wander home i did into the odd with friends where I was just like, okay, guys, everyone who wants to should meet me at this bar at this time. <laughs> I have Lovely. everything set up and it was great. And like we had friends, I had friends like drop in and out throughout the day. It was really fun. And then I have like a couple friends who literally were in like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign without me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things where I get to game like fairly frequently. Um, nice. and I'm doing an on in person, which is really, really nice. And then I'm doing like an online game every like two or three weeks that's hearts of Wu Lin, which i'm really excited about mm. yeah every now and then like i get asked to i get asked if i would want to do like a one shot or a like guest character on an ap and i'm like that's yeah. fine like i'll do a one shot i'll even do like a mini arc but like anything more than two to three sessions like no can't do it. <laughs> yep i get that i do get to game a lot actually and i really enjoy it are there types of of stories or genres or vibes that you really kind of have found yourself that you gravitate towards? You know, where it's like, ah, man, if I'm playing in a game, I love this kind of experience or I love this kind of, I like crunchy ones or I like X, Y, Z, or I just like stories that are hopeful or bleak or or whatever. You know, just as someone who professionally consumes storytelling engines mm-hmm. and stories and movies, you know, what are there, are there through lines you've kind of noticed about yourself? For the most part, I like games that allow the players to be the writers. Mm -hmm. And I like games that don't necessarily deal with things like resource management. Like, that doesn't interest me. I don't really care for games that are like, well, you are five feet away. Uh, That means that you can't shoot them with your musket or else you'll do (laughs) like damage to yourself and you'll have to Mm -hmm. roll on the like musket damage table. And I'm just like also (laughs) just like not interested in that. Uh, so if anything is basically like too crunchy, it's usually just like mm-hmm. not for me, not my kind of game. Um, even Lancer is just like great idea, lovely art, 
too crunchy. There's some crunch for sure. Too crunchy for me. You need like rulers at the table. It's like, uh, are we this far away? Are we this whatever? Yeah, no. Instead of like kind of focusing on the nitty gritty, because a lot of those like early tabletop games were war game, were based on war gaming, and a sure. lot of that war gaming evolved into mechanized video games. And now we're sort of like at the point where it's like instead of video games kind of replacing that crunch, it has simply invited people to be even weirder with their crunch. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh no, we've truly come full circle and I hate it. It's not the part of the circle that I thought we were coming full circle to. Yeah, it's like an Ouroboros, and I'm just like, no, we're doing it again. <laughs> we're back. Um, so yeah, anything that's kind of like too crunchy, I'm not a fan of. I like stuff that's weird and esoteric. I appreciate that there are solo tabletop games out there. However, I am not the best fit for those sorts of journaling games. Not because of any reason other than like, why am I doing this instead of just like writing my novel? Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna go do that. Sure. So yeah, I like stuff that has a moderate level of crunch, allows people to be writers and embodies their themes really clearly. I think that if a game tries to be too much of like everything for everyone, I'm just like, what's the point of this? You are just creating an engine and hoping that people fill the blanks with their own yeah. like desires. And I'm just like, I like games like Price of Coal. That is a game that knows what it's about, knows how to execute and does it. I like games like Himbos of Myth and Metal just has like a, a vision, has a vision, has something it wants to say. And that's like kind of the same thing with like Eat the Reich that we sort of mentioned. It's a game that has a very specific thing yeah. that it does really well. Like Sleep Away, right? J-Dragon, mm -hmm. very specific thing it does very well. Yes. Those are the kind of games that I like and prefer is something that like has a story in mind and invites you to tell that story your way and define that story and like reimagine that story. The first game that sort of really showed me how you could do that was Masks by Magpie mm, Games mm -hmm. around the time when it first came out, where it's just like, this is a game that knows exactly the kind of yeah. story it wants you to tell, but it doesn't tell you how to sit, tell that story it lets you be the writer of that story so i think those are the games that i like the most how do you or do you balance i guess the kind of like i'm writing for me i'm writing for my job i'm trying to carve out space for both do you find find them both necessary for you um and how do you kind of like balance it with a deft hand Mm -mm. Uh, no. The deft hand shows once more. Uh, I would say I balance it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, I would say that I mean, it is necessary for me to like be a writer outside of being a journalist. Um, I write novels. I write short stories. I write games. That is something that I am like unwilling to give up. So I do need to get better at like carving out time and sort of being like, no, like on this day, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna like dedicate it to a game. It's really difficult. I don't have any tips and I wish I was better at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not all, it doesn't all need to be tips on this this show certainly. It's yeah. it's a lot of it is just being like, yes, hello. I am a human. I am not a, an output machine. I also don't yeah. get to write my my novels and my things as much as I'd like. The only like tip that I have or the only like mantra mantra that I have is like the best way to like do something is just to do it, man. 
You just got to do it. You have to practice. If you want ideas, you have to have ideas. You, If you have one idea, you can have two ideas and you just have a list yeah. of ideas and the ideas will come easier and faster and more often if you just realize that you are having an idea Yes. and you record that idea somewhere. <laughs> That's the same with writing. It's just a practice. You know, I don't necessarily think that I'm a talented writer because I just have talent. I'm a talented writer because I write every single day. I write every single day. I am either like doing journalism or I'm writing my stories or I'm writing my game or I'm reading games or I'm doing research or I'm reading like a book. I do something related to my craft every single day. And that's just the long and short of it. You know, and that's why I'm a good writer. Because you do writing. Because I write. There is no need to be inspired. Inspiration is not necessary. <laughs> it's just discipline. That's all it is. Yeah, totally. Linda, mm. I have bad news. I think it's mostly just bad news. Sure, hit me. Bad news and worse news. Mm. Uh, the bad news is that we are near the end oh, of our okay. lovely, lovely conversation here. Oh, whew. Get me worried. Well, uh, there's a part two. Hmm. Uh, because what that means for you, hmm. the subject of this of this conversation, is that it is now time for the infamous Reckless Attack Lightning Round. All right, let's do it. It is grueling. It is intensive. It's going to make you question reality itself, let alone kind of your own semblance of personality and humanity. Gosh, sounds fun. I think so. But, the, you know, I'm also I'm the one asking it, not mm. the one having to answer them. So uh, these are always the same questions that we ask to every single person who has ever been on this show in the same order. There are no wrong answers. Uh, I will try very hard to just not say anything unless you say something like, truly wild <laughs> that I have to ask a question about. But I, I, you can say a one-word answer, and that I will pause a respectful amount of time and say, all right, cool, that's all they're saying, moving on. Or it can be a whole long-winded thing. Whatever you deem to be the answer, capital T, capital A, is what is appropriate. Sure, final answer, got it. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Great. Question one, is your glass half full or half empty? It is probably an eighth full at this point in time. They were looking at, at, their, at their glass for those listening on a podcast. Question two. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Hmm. I really like it when my dog wags her tail. What does not excite you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? That's kind of a hard one. I think that this kind of goes back to what we spoke about earlier, where there's like kind of an innate curiosity in even the things that like really disgust us and the things that like hurt us and the things that maybe we don't really want to talk about. I don't know if there if there is anything out there that does not incite, at the very least, a curiosity in me. What is your favorite sound? The surceration of waves on a beach. That one's so easy. Uh, I grew up on the water. It doesn't have to be like a, a sandy beach. It can be a rocky beach. Rocky beaches are probably better for sound, frankly. Yeah, I grew up on the water. I grew up sailing. I grew up swimming in the ocean. I grew up surfing. Just the sound of waves in general. What sound do you hate? Uh... There's like the sound that like cars make when they break really fast. It is like the squeak, <laughs> but also just like a scream. But also mm. like there's kind of that weird 
anticipatory, like what's happening next. Mm. So it's not just the sound for me. It's definitely like the full body experience of like someone is stopping a 10 ton vehicle, like really, really fast. Like what the fuck is going on there? What's your favorite word? Sarek. S-A-R-E-C. It's a glacial ice formation that is sharp and spiky. What is your least favorite word? Hmm. I don't know if I have a least favorite word. I'm going to say I don't have one. Mm-hmm. What tabletop role-playing game, D&D, etc., etc., monster or antagonist, have you not faced and or run that you would love to? Oh, there's so many. There's so many. I don't know. Like the the best antagonist is the one that like comes out of the the, the story you're working on. Hmm. I think that like I I don't think that there's any like specific antagonist or like specific villain or like thing from a bestiary that I'm interested in. I think that the best thing that I'm like excited to run is whatever is mm-hmm. the villain of the table. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And it doesn't need to be a tabletop role-playing game adventure. It can be an adventure story, an adventure movie, an adventure that you wrote, that you've read, that you have seen played out on an actual play. It can be 1999's The Mummy, whatever it means to you. My favorite adventure I think that I've ever been on was I spent a summer, it's been a couple summers, but I spent like one specific summer as a charter boat captain in the Caribbean. Ooh. Uh, and I had a lot of adventures that summer, (laughs) a lot of adventures, like adventures. Like I saw the biggest fucking tiger shark you've ever seen. I was like bothered by a sand shark and I like had to save a kid's life. And I went night sailing towards the Anagata and I like single-handedly sailed a 50-foot boat in between islands while reading Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. I got high on a beach on mushroom tea like that summer (laughs) was an incredible adventure and i never want to do it again (laughs) what is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time and again it can be one you've played it can be one you played with it can be an npc in an actual play it could be uh an npc in an adventure whatever it means to you I had a drag persona that was like an Appalachian witch that was just like very, very funny. And I sort of turned that into the main character of a novel. There's always one question where it's like technically by my own rules I have set. I can't ask follow-up questions, but I need to note that I'd like to follow up on it. But I won't because of the format and because there's one final question for you. You can always DM me later. That's true. I suppose that's true. <laughs> it's not like we're never going to talk after this. <laughs> um, yeah, hit me. Last question. Final question. What gives you hope? Oh, gosh. Just about everything, I think. There's just like such an impossible joy in like the fact that we are alive at all such like an impossible hopefulness that like we are here having this conversation life itself is just such like an expression of joy and hope in general and that like we are here creating art together and we're doing this interview that shows that there is like love and hope in the world as we sort of move through it in a way that like we're trying to make sense of it and just like the impossibility the like sheer improbability of two human beings talking to each other through weird little 
metal microphones through wires through radio waves like it's that's fucking crazy dude that's insane like if you told anyone 50 years ago this would be able this would be happening right now they wouldn't give you the time of day man we are here existing and creating art and like doing important things like that's so hopeful and joyful uh and i think that that's kind of again like goes to the curiosity and like the all-consuming like there's something to be thought of about everything and there's something to be considered in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we like game or play or write or experience so i find just like the fact that we are here existing in this sort of like miasma of improbability we've managed to be probable and so it's super cool. And with that, I offer my sincerest and heartiest congratulations for you have not only, Linda, made it to the end of the Reckless Attack lightning round, but also to the end of Reckless Attack itself. Thank you so very dearly for your time, your energy, your uh, insights, your everything. Aww. As a final reward for all, all the hardships that you have overcome during the course of this conversation, could you please remind everyone who you are, where they can find you, how they can support you, all the things. Cool. Uh, I'm Linda Cadega. I am a staff writer and entertainment journalist for io9. The best way to support me is to follow me on Twitter at Lynn Cadega and read my work at io9. And if you are compelled to further follow me or support me, by all means, follow me on my Substack, where I will be writing more personal observations about just being a journalist and hopefully future-proofing myself in our <laughs> fast, quickly evolving media landscape. Linda, yeah. thank you very dearly, very deeply. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Bye. Bye.